8. All right, so we are in Matthew. Matthew chapter 6, if you want to grab your Bibles, we'll need them. Matthew 6, and our text today is the first four verses, and I'll read it and then pray, and then I'll intro it a little bit to you so that you know why we're, why we're in this passage today. So Matthew 6, verse 1. It says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Let's, let's pray again. So Father, we come before you asking your help as we seek to understand your word and apply it to our lives. And Lord, I, I pray that you would challenge us this morning with this text, that we would not parade our righteousness but instead we would point people to Jesus Christ, to the hope that we have in you, to the saving grace that is in Jesus alone. That we would, with our lives and our words and even the way that we hide things, we would make Jesus the hero. We wouldn't seek to exalt ourselves. We are so prone to do that, but we don't want to do that. We want to make Christ the hero. So Father, I pray this morning that you would make truth clear to us, perhaps it haven't been clear before, I pray that the gospel first would be clear to us. We would understand what it means that Jesus Christ died for us. Believe that. Leave here clinging to that hope alone. And then make, make these truths. Help us to see what it means to live out this Christian life. Help us to apply the truths here. And Father, I pray for the students who have come back uh, today. I know there, there are many who are coming, uh, coming back today in the process of coming back. But those who are back today for the first time, uh, thank you for them. I, I pray that you would use this year in their lives in a great way. Help them to grow in you, to understand new things, and just become stronger in their faith and hope in you. And for new students, especially new students who are for the first time leaving home, we pray for them. We pray that they would, they would get into a groove here in Shadron that honors your name. I pray that you'd help them to find good friends who will lead them in, on straight paths. And we just pray that you would help them as they transition to what it means to live on your own and be an adult. And now, Lord, for the next, I don't know, 35 minutes, would you please help me to preach this well, communicate your word well, for your name's sake. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so we are back to the gospel according to Matthew. Um, if, you, if you're a new student or you haven't been here long, let me just say a few things by way of introduction. Matthew 5 through 7 um, records the Sermon on the Mount, what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And it's called the Sermon on the Mount because in Matthew 5, 1, it says, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to them and he began to teach them. And what he taught them was Matthew 5 through 7. It's the greatest sermon ever preached. And we're right in the middle of it. We finished up 
chapter five last semester. And then when the students left, when, when we broke for the summer, we took a break from this series and we went to Proverbs. And so today we're just picking up where we left off in Matthew six. So we're in the greatest sermon ever preached and it's, it truly is awesome. And you know, here's the thing. It's not as if Jesus preached this sermon in a vacuum. It's not like that the people who are hearing this sermon had no like ideas about God or what it meant to live a righteous life. He was not preaching the sermon to a secular crowd primarily. He was preaching to people who were very religious. He was preaching to and about people who knew how to play the game as it were. And sadly to many, it was a game. Uh, to many people, their religion wasn't truly about pleasing God. It was about kind of like outdoing one another, being more righteous than others. It was virtue signaling, to use a, a modern term. The religious leaders of the day and many religious people were simply using their religion as a way to be better than others. I think there's something in us that always wants to be better, right? We always want to look down our nose on other people. And that comes out in the way we do the Christian life sometimes too. And they did it well. They looked and smelled religious. They looked the part of a people who must really love God because they performed so well. They gave. Oh, did they give? And they prayed. They fasted. And when they did those things, you knew it. Everyone knew it. It was plastered all over their social media feeds. They were first, this was first rate religious spectacle. They looked the part and they knew how to signal their virtue very well. And Jesus preached this sermon in part as a confrontation against them. This is the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus's confrontation with the religious world. At the end of the day, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus preaching. This is no game. A relationship with God, the kingdom of heaven, it's, it's not a game. It, it's not won or achieved or entered into by looking religious. God does not smile on those who look virtuous or signal their virtue. He does not smile on those who know how to play the game, even those who know how to play the game really well. According to Jesus, your religion is either real, genuine, heart level, aimed at God, or it's worthless. That was the original context of this, that this sermon was preaching. Now, let me just ask you a question. Do you think there's any relevance to this now, to us and to our context? Of course, people still know how to play the game. People in rural church-going Nebraska know how to play the game. People know how to sound and act like they really love God. Like, they, like they're very religious, like they're, they're really good. People do so many things publicly and visibly and their true motivation is not so that they might see the smile of God one day, see the, feel the pleasure of God over their lives, but that other people would look at them and say, man, that guy is really good. He's so virtuous, he's so righteous. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus confronting that. He's confronting our religious world. It's Jesus saying, either your relationship with God is real or your religion is worthless. The Sermon on the Mount confronts modern Christians. It confronts me. 
No part of the Bible makes me feel less comfortable than the Sermon on the Mount. Not when I'm being honest. At every turn, as I study these passages, I hear Jesus saying so clearly, Mike, I don't care how good you look. I'm, I'm interested in your heart. My concern is not what you project. I'm not fooled by your curated avatar. I know your heart. I see in secret. I'm interested in change and transformation there. I don't know, does that make you feel uncomfortable? If it does, let me just encourage you. That means you're at least listening (laughs) and hearing Jesus rightly. Let's let Jesus preach this to our hearts today so that we stop playing games. Love God for real and live out the transformed life for real. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about and what it's for and what it should preach to us. So in verse one, when Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people, he's introducing the message or the theme of verses two through 18. And there are three main things in view in this message, this part of the message. Giving, praying, and fasting. That's the practice of righteousness that Jesus had in mind in verse one, when he said, beware of practicing your righteousness. Those are the three things he goes to, giving, praying, and fasting. And if you think of it, I think those are, representative categories of pretty much all of the Christian life. If someone asked you to describe what it means to live as a Christian, like what, is, what, is it, what does it mean like in practice to live as a Christian? I, I think your answer would probably touch, at least touch on those three categories. So being a Christian means that I serve other people. I help others. I care about other people and I want to help them. Being a Christian means not hoarding all your time and resources for your own pleasure, but leveraging those to help other people, right? Oh, you mean like giving alms? That's what's in view in verses one through four, what we're going to talk about mostly today. Being a Christian means that I cultivate a regular relationship with God. I, I, I want to live out the Christian life. And what it means is I, it has everything to do with my devotional life. Spending time with God. Oh, you mean like praying? That's in verses five through 15. Being a Christian means that I deny myself. I I fight against sin. I do everything that, I don't do everything that my body desires to do. I I don't give into every craving. I, I discipline my body to glorify God with it. Oh, you mean like fasting? Verses 16 through 18. So giving, praying, and fasting. These are the big three categories in verses one through 18. And that's what Jesus means in verse one when he says, practicing your righteousness. Jesus is addressing them to confront the wrong way we approach our practical Christian life. And he's teaching us the right way to do it and the right way to view it. This morning, as we work through the first one, giving, I don't think you should think only about giving away your money or charitable giving or or tithing. I mean, certainly those things are part of this and we should think about them, but I think you should see giving alms as a representative category for the way that you serve other people as a Christian. The way we leverage our resources, our time, talents, gifts, and treasure, how we use those things for God and for his glory. That's what's in view in these four verses. Jesus is teaching us the wrong way to do that and the right way. The wrong way is where he goes first. And the wrong way is don't sound a trumpet before you give, okay? Now, before we go there, let me just say a quick word about 
how Jesus seems to view giving. Okay, you'll notice here that there's no command directly to give. In verses one through four, there's no command to give. Uh, only the assumption that you will be a giver. Do you see that? He's assuming that you'll give. Verse two says, when you give to the needy. So he's not commanding you to give to the needy. He's saying, when you do it, it's, there's an assumption that you give. He doesn't begin with a command, just an assumption. Those who are serious about serving God with their lives will be givers. God has called Christians to be radical givers, to be radically generous with our resources. And again, not just money, our time, our stuff, talents, all of it. And Jesus here simply assumes that we would be doing that and give to the needy. God cares for the poor. God cares for the poor. And we, people who are supposed to be after God's heart, we should care for the poor. So simply note with me that Jesus assumes that we will be giving. And with that assumption, he gives a wrong way to do that. And then, and the wrong way is to sound the trumpet before you. Now, if, if somebody in the corner over there was to sound a loud trumpet, and I almost set this up, but then decided not to. But if somebody over there sounded a really loud trumpet, what would we all do? We'd all turn and look, right? Who is making that noise? Where is that noise coming? Oh, it's, it's Timothy over there. <laughs> He's going to love me for that. <laughs> that's who's making that noise. He's sounding a trumpet. We all would turn and look. And that's what he means here. I mean, it's an obvious illustration. That's what it means when you blow your own trumpet. Jesus is using that metaphor. And it's really a ridiculous one if you think of it. Because we, we, we normally wouldn't give and just blow a trumpet. Some people think that this is alluding to some ancient practice. I'm not convinced. I think he's using just a metaphor of blowing your trumpet so that everyone will look and hear where the sound is coming from as you give so that people would see you and know that you're doing that. And he's saying, don't sound your trumpet so that when you give, everyone hears about it, turns and sees where the trumpet blast is coming from, sees your generosity and thinks about you, how good you are. In other words, don't give in such a way as to let everyone know what you're doing so that they might think that you are virtuous. And we could talk about lots of ways we could do that. Social media is a huge modern trumpet that we could use to show the world how much we love and serve God. Social media is a perfect virtue signaling trumpet. And we know how to use that for that purpose. But there are other ways too. We can be very clever. We can be subtle in our sounding of the trumpet. Dropping a phrase here and there. So think of it like this. Sounding a trumpet is however we purposely and intentionally display or make people aware of our service to God. That's blowing your trumpet. Now note with me that it's not merely the display that's wrong, that he's like condemning. It's not merely the blowing of the trumpet. It isn't merely letting others know that you're doing it that's wrong, according to Jesus. It isn't just sounding that trumpet that he's warning against. It's why we are sounding that trumpet that he's warning against. That's at the heart of this. The heart of the matter, to use a cliche, is the heart. In verses 1 and 2, the motive behind that display is exposed. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And then verse two, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they might be praised by others. Do you see? It isn't merely the display that's sinful. It's why we're displaying it. Why we feel that impetus to put it out there. Look at me. 
We blow our trumpet because we desire the praise of man. We're not really doing it for God, but for others. Now note the word hypocrites in verse 2. You know what that word originally meant? The word hypocrites? It meant actor. It's simply, uh, it's, it's actually not a Greek word. It's, I mean, an English word. It's actually a Greek word that we just kind of imported, hypocrites, and it means actor. When, when Bill Cosby was exposed a few years ago for being a complete monster, I don't know if you know who Bill Cosby is. Um, I don't know if you know this story or not, but when I heard about it, I was kind of shocked at first. I mean, I used to watch the Cosby show as a child. Anyone ever watch that Cosby show? I know it dates me. Your guys are like, what? You know, but whatever. I own it. I thought Cliff Huxtable was the greatest dad ever. You know, like I watched this thing. And I thought, wow, what a cool guy. What a, what a good man. And you know, we, we have a tendency to transfer that to the actor. You know, Cosby, what a, what a good man. What a good man he was. What an awesome person he must be. So when Cosby, Bill Cosby, who played Cliff, was shown to be this big time abuser, this criminal abuser of women, it, it shocked me. It was shocking to me for a moment. I mean, then it just, I, I was reminded, you know, Cliff, Hus- Cliff Huxtable was just Cosby's act. Cosby was an actor, he was a pretty good one, and he could pretend to be a good and decent person, even though that's not at all who he really was. He was an actor. He was a hypocrite. And that's what Jesus calls many religious people who give so that others can see them and praise them for their goodness. They are actors. They pretend to love God. They pretend to care about other people. Friends, we can be very good actors. And the impulse to act, I think, runs deeply in us. We, we want others to perceive us as good. We have a deep craving for the praise of man. And so we hone our, we, we hone our acting skills. We're really good at playing Cliff Huxtable on social media or in the little comments that we drop or maybe even more blatant, obvious expositions of our virtue. The craving for human praise runs deep. And it's a very dangerous game to play. At the end of verse 2, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, they have their reward. Now let me just unpack that with a quick illustration. What he means when he says they have their reward in full. In verse 2. When I first got back into running several years ago, the first month was pretty difficult. I don't know if you've not run for a long time and decided to get back into it. Uh, I was out of shape. Um, running is hard. Running is awful. I don't know why anyone likes it. I guess I kind of like, I don't like it, but I do it. Um, but here's what I would do. So, you know, I'm, I'm just starting out again and I'm running, but I'm way out of shape. And so I can't run for very long. And so I got to walk a lot. You know what I mean? But here's when I heard a car coming, you know what I did? I ran. Or if I, or if I saw somebody, you know, like I saw somebody way off in the distance and I'm going to run until I pass them, go around the corner, and then I'm going to stop. You know what I mean? It, ostensibly, I was running to get back into shape, right? That's why people run. They, people want to be fit. But this little run when people can see me thing did nothing for my fitness, My reward was only that some stranger saw some dude who wasn't walking. (laughs) 
Even though I was out there to get into shape, I was not getting into shape. I had my reward in full. Do you see what I'm getting at here? When we give or serve others in order to be seen by people and to be praised by them, we have our reward. We appear to do those things because we want the smile of God. We want to please God with our lives. We want to please God with our giving. But it does nothing in that area. God is not pleased. Some person for a brief moment saw you as virtuous. That's your reward. And if you think of it, it's so silly. The praise of man is momentary and fickle and worthless. It's momentary. Think of the last time you, you, you just really nailed it in a certain area and got the praise of people. Maybe the last time you really nailed it on social media and got a like storm. How long did that pleasure last you? A day? Week? It's just momentary. Human praise is momentary and it's fickle. You, you can be praised one day and absolutely scorned the next by the same people. So, human praise is fickle. We're flavor of the day kind of people. And today we can pour it out for someone whom tomorrow we will speak very badly of. Human praise is at the end of the day worthless too. If someone praises you because you do something really noble, that they think you're, that's really noble, and that they're praising you because you ostensibly really love God, but you actually did it because you love the praise of man, they are praising you for something that isn't really true. Do you see? The praise is worthless. It's not true. They're really praising you. They aren't really praising you. They're praising your, your fictitious avatar. They're praising Cliff Huxtable. That dude doesn't exist. The smile of God, though, is another thing altogether. His smile is not fickle or momentary or worthless. His smile matters. And his smile, when the act of service or giving is real and genuine, it's real. He smiles at the expression of worship from the heart. And you know why? Because he sees in secret. He knows when the heart is genuine. So when you serve other people, don't do it for the fickle smiles of people, but for the everlasting smile of God, the reward of God. Give your heart out because you love God and want to please him. You might recall a conversation Jesus had with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Do you remember this story? It's an amazing story. You should, you should go read it. Um, it's in John chapter 5. Uh, one day Jesus was talking to a Samaritan woman who lived a pretty rough life, but who, in spite of it all, knew how to play the game, and she knew how to even sound religious. She even knew how to talk about religion. She asked Jesus a very deep theological question about worship right after he kind of pointed at her craving for things and people. She wanted to talk about worship. But she was no genuine worshiper of God, not in that moment, not, not yet. She would be. God was going after her heart. It's an amazing story and one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Jesus was calling this woman to stop playing the game. The woman asked Jesus a question about the rules of worship. She was asking where true worship was to happen. Listen to part of Jesus' response. This is in John, I say five, I meant four. John 4, verses 23 through 24. It says, the hour is coming. 
And now is, this is Jesus' answer to her question where worship should be. The hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The Father is after true worshipers. He's seeking true worshipers. We have a tendency to center on the form and the appearance of the avatar. You know what I mean? God is seeking true worshipers. And here's the really sweet news of all of this. You you know what that seeking looks like? You know how the Father is seeking true worshipers? How he was seeking when Jesus mentioned this? Because Jesus was talking in real time. He said the Father is seeking worshipers. The Father seeking after genuine worshipers look like him sending the Son of God, Jesus, into the world to die on the cross for our game-playing ways and save us and give us his righteousness, to give us a new heart. Jesus' perfect life and his death on the cross for us and his resurrection was the Father seeking genuine worshipers. And you know what that means for me? It means that I can stop playing the game now. I can stop. I don't have to do this anymore. And I I can worship God for real, in truth. Not in mere pretense before people. In Christ, I have a new heart. And so now for real, I can worship God in spirit and in truth and do so with my life and with my resources. And you know what? I'm glad. It's exhausting playing the game. Do you feel it? I can live now for his reward, not for the praise of man. I am free from that old craving to, to, to be liked. I'm free from it. Jesus died on the cross so that we would no longer sound the trumpet and display our false righteousness, our play devotion. He suffered and died for all who believe in him so that we can now serve God with a new heart and genuinely seek and receive the smile of God forever. Are you tired of playing the game? My invitation to you is to turn to Christ and be done with the game forever. Our craving for human praise runs so deep that Jesus gives another ridiculous illustration. I say ridiculous because, like, um, it's so outlandish you can't actually be so, you know? He says in verses three through five, and he does this to help us live as far away from the old hypocrite in us as possible. He says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Your hands don't really know anything, right? But he's making a, a really clear point there. Let it be in secret. I think it means that we should be so Godward in our focus that we not only don't blow the trumpet, right? So that people would see us, but we hardly know ourselves what we've done. Like we're not even keeping track ourselves. Look how righteous I am. I'm not even thinking it. Our genuine aim is to please God and not man. And so we not only don't display it out of modesty and hide it from everyone, we even hide it from ourselves. Our right hand doesn't know what our left hand is doing. We hide it from everyone except for the one who sees in secret. If your right hand gives something to the poor, you don't even want your left hand to know it. Now, the point isn't 
anonymity. Anonymity by itself is not a virtue. God is not simply more pleased because you didn't tell anyone. And sometimes anonymity is not even possible. Sometimes you can't give that way. It's impossible. So it's not the anonymity itself that's in view or even vital to Jesus' teaching. Anonymity is simply the evidence that you're not acting. That this is not a game to you. That you did what you did or you gave what you gave because you genuinely love God and love others. And you're not after the fickle and momentary and worthless praise from people. You are not serving to be praised by man. And again, my heart is so clever at that. I have to fight my own desire to display. And I'm clever and subtle at it. I have to be intentional about anonymity. I have to be serious about it. Because the craving in my heart for human praise runs deep. So I should not let my right hand know what my left is doing to cut off that desire from my heart. Because Jesus died and rose again so that I can be done with that act forever. And worship him in spirit and in truth. No more pretense. No more games. Only the genuine smile of God on a blood-bought saint. Now before we wrap this up, I want to tackle one passage in the Sermon on the Mount that seems to be in tension with, with this one. Okay, Something that seems to be kind of like saying something different than he's saying here. So if you flip back one page, Matthew 5.16 says, this is also Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In our passage, he said, using a different metaphor, don't blow your trumpet. And in that passage, he's saying, let your light shine before others. So which is it? Should I let my works be known or should I keep them so secret that my left hand doesn't even know what my right hand is doing. Which, which is it? The clue to the answer to that tension, there's no real tension here, the perceived tension, the clue to the answer that resolves this is the motive which he explains, which he actually says in each of these passages. In Matthew 5.16, we let our light shine so that when people see that light, they give glory to God in heaven. They don't glorify me for my good works. I mean, it's an odd passage if you think of it. They will see your good works and glorify the Father. They don't glorify me for my good works. They glorify him and not me. And that must mean that the way that I let my light shine makes it clear that this is not my own doing. These good works are the work of God in me. He has transformed me by his grace. That's why, the, that, that's why they glorify him and not me. It's fruit from God's saving grace in my life. They see my good works and glorify my father because it's plain to them that Christ is the hero, not me. Do you see? And in our passage, the reason I don't sound my trumpet is because there is a residual desire in my heart to still be the hero. So that people might look at my good works and glorify me. Not my father who's in heaven. But at the end of the day, Jesus is the hero, not me. The only reason anyone cares about the poor. The only reason I, I, I could care about anyone else is because of Christ and that work of grace he has done in my heart. 
God is the hero. Thus, if there's any possibility at all that people might make me, make much of me, make me the hero, then anonymity is needed, crucial. And if there is any way I can let people see in me how good and how gracious and how transforming and how saving and how wonderful and how beautiful Jesus is, I should let it shine before men. I want the world to know the hero is Christ. And we can only do that when our Christian lives cease being a game that we play to compete with other people. When we stop pandering to the fickle praise of men and we long for the eternal smile of God to make him shine brightly in this dark world. So where is it at for you, friend? I, I don't know about you, but I, I felt like a great need after studying this to do some heart searching. Why do you do any good for others? Why do you live the Christian life? Is it to display your own supposed goodness or do you do it because Jesus has captured your heart and your life and you're not your own? He owns you. He bought you with a price. He's transformed your life. And now you cannot help but to live for his glory, to leverage all that you are and have for him. Is that why? Are you serving to make his name famous? Oh, may the Lord do that work in us so that there are no more games, no more show. We don't just, we don't just do the Christian thing. We live for Christ, the Lord of all, the King of heaven, the one who has saved us from our sins by his death and his burial and his resurrection. No more show, no more acting, no more avatars, no more trumpets. The obvious hero in our lives is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I, I do pray that you do that work in me and in us. I pray that you would do that work. I pray that we would so long to see your name glorified, that we would live our lives in a way that makes much of you and little of us, that we might decrease and you might increase. Lord, if we're to blow any trumpets, any trumpets at all, may, may they be the horn of Christ for your glory. And Lord, we are so grateful for your saving grace to us. Thank you that you have, you have saved us by your grace. If there are any here who do not understand that today, like in a saving way, Lord, I pray that today you would help them to see it and believe. Help them to turn away from just trying to be righteous before you by doing things. Trying. Trying to do the right thing so that you might be pleased with them. Like just trying to earn their righteousness. Father, I pray that you would help them to see that our righteousness is in Christ. And they, they would turn by faith to Christ and that there'd be no more games among us. We would simply serve you in truth. We thank you for your grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen.